This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello and welcome to Savor, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an episode for you about the food of Downton Abbey. Yes, yes. <laughs> this one has a lot of branches. We've already been talking about some some side quests we want to go on and revisit yes. in the future. Yes, absolutely. Um, because I uh, I like... Okay, so so I had watched the first couple seasons of this show sort of as it was coming out. And then... Uh, fell off because of this thing that happens at the end of season three, um, after which, and if y'all have watched the show, you know what I'm talking about, after which I was kind of like table flip, never mind. I am (laughs) mad Mm -hmm. at this forever. And now I'm like, oh, am I mad at it forever? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. I think I had a similar thing. So this this fictional foods episodes, which you all know we love doing our fictional foods episodes, mm-hmm. um, was the suggestion of many. Many of you have written in about oh, it. Yeah. We've read some of the letters about like the parties you all have thrown around this show and the foods of this show, and they sound delightful. Yeah. Yes. And this follows up our our kind of Red Wall Abbey. So it's a two Abbeys. <laughs> the uh, tale of two Abbeys. Yes. We need a third Abbey and we'll have the trifecta elf on that one. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I also, I had several friends when Downton Abbey was first coming out, really were into it, loved it. And it was kind of a, I mean, it was a big deal. People were talking about it. It was kind oh, of yeah. those cultural zeitgeist moments where everybody was talking about it. Um 
And so I did I did watch, I'm guessing, yeah, the first three seasons then. Uh, and I did enjoy it. It's not really my thing. Um, and I mean that in like, I have friends who love kind of this period piece yeah. drama. Like I, and I did enjoy it. I really did enjoy it. But it's not something I would typically seek out. So after, I think there was just a wait. And I just never returned. Yeah. But I did. I did uh, have fun watching it. And I, I love those shows, even if I'm not super into them. Game of Thrones was similar. I like those shows where you just, like, have fun watching them with people and talk about it with people. And I don't know. Uh, that was kind of similar. That was the, that's my vibe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Abby. Oh, especially anything with just that level of production value mm-hmm. where you're just like, I'm not entirely sure what's going on. Like, like maybe mm-hmm. maybe you're not like an avid follower of the show. You're like, who's that character? Do I care? There's a costume. Great. Like, right. <laughs> right. Um, and snarky dialogue and heck yeah. Like that that entire vibe is is very, yes. Um, oh, it's it's a lot, but in a really beautiful way. Yeah. It's it's definitely fun, and I get why people were, were really into it. Uh, so I, I'm excited to talk about this one. And it's interesting because it's kind of like fictionalized history. Like a lot of things we talk about, it's like, oh, this exists in a galaxy far, far away. This is like, yeah, it exists. It's just sort of dramatized, fictionalized. Yeah, yeah. Um, and And right, and sort of getting into sort of the differences between the real-life showmanship and the show showmanship. Right, yes. <laughs> of this type of uh, cuisine, sure. Yes. Um, and we are going to get into that more in depth, but I guess this brings us to our question. Sure. Downton Abbey. What is it? Well, uh, Downton Abbey is a British fictional historical drama franchise um, about the people who live and work in the eponymous Downton Abbey, um, uh, which during the period that the plot is set, which is the 19-teens and 20s, is this sort of aging country estate belonging to a, a British aristocratic family, the fictional Crawleys. Yes. The show was created and uh, co-written, I believe, by uh, by Julian Fellows, who is known for writing dramas and romances and mysteries that tend to focus on um, class issues and class peculiarities in England. Um, you know, like the indulgences and restrictions and pressures of both the upper and lower classes, um, which is indeed what Downton is about. Uh, The franchise consists of a TV series that originally aired from 2010 to 2015 in the UK, comprising six seasons with seven episodes in the first and uh, eight episodes plus a special um, uh, in each of the rest, plus a sequel film that came out in 2019 and a second film that is currently in production slated for release in May of this year, uh, 2022. (laughs) My mind panicked. I was like, what year is it? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, which is uh, interesting. Interesting that it's, I don't know, because to me, I kind of fell off. So I'm like, where? Where's the story now? What's going on now? Yeah, I have no idea. I was reading some some of the plot summaries for 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 latter seasons and i was like mm-hmm. wow that that's a departure cool that's a departure yeah i mean there's definitely a lot of storylines and threads going on but we're kind of on time with this one a little bit we're ahead of the ahead of the curve also yeah but- yeah it, uh, the the second film was slated um 
well, uh, not originally, but re-slated to be released in March of mm. this year, which, you know, we would be right on time for. But yeah, you know, we definitely that's what we were thinking for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Uh, at any rate, yes. Uh, so, so the series uh, follows the Crawleys and their estate staff in the uh, rapidly yet stodgedly changing world of the uh, late and uh, post-Edwardian era. Uh, like spoilers, okay. It opens with the sinking of the Titanic in 1912. Um, the the heir of the estate was on the ship throwing the family into this, like, very era-specific chaos of um, who can inherit the estate, not ladies, um, Mm -hmm. and whether um, an American heiress or a, like, merely upper-middle-class cousin are, like, good enough to really be part of the family. Um, And meanwhile, um, their staff are struggling and scrapping to maintain this household and propriety and appearances um, and their own, like, mirrored precarious place in society via this family and via their closeness to this family. Um, There's a lot of clash of the younger generation against the older generation in both classes. um, And all of this is against the backdrop of industrialization and the expansion of the middle class and all of the cultural upheaval that, uh, that went with that. And the series covers a couple decades. So, like, you know, as it goes on, they're grappling with uh, World War One and the 1918 flu pandemic and women's suffrage and the decline of the British Empire. No big. Um, <laughs> the first <laughs> film is set in 1927. I couldn't find a date for the upcoming film's setting, but it's presumably just after that. And uh, in, in the show... Um, and 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 the films, uh, the the telling of all of these stories is very much in the visual style of of the costume drama, um, just lush costuming and set dressing and cinematography, and I think that it's the combination of of that, plus uh, you know the inclusion of both upstairs and downstairs plot lines, um, upper class and lower class plot lines. Um, Plus, the scripting style being in more like the sharp, witty tradition of 1930s and 40s comedy satire, like even ranging into the patter of screwball comedy that made the series such a hit. Um, because you you get to see this this like this like ailing but still grand old tradition and also the cracks in the gilding. And, and all the stresses of the servant class that underpin the entire system. But, like, you still get to see the grandness and the gilding. Yeah, for sure. I think there's kind of the, like, I don't know, the outsider kind of looking in and having fun with this sort of gossipy, like, ooh. Yeah. I can <laughs> oh, see, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see some issues here, some sparks going to fly, like having that sort of fun... <laughs> fun watching of all these problems and uh, talking about them. I, I do think it was a show that encouraged, like, you wanted to talk to your friends about it. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, it's also, um, I mean, not necessarily, of course, but but it but it is also um, using the lens of history um, and the hindsight involved in that to talk mm-hmm. about contemporary issues, you know, of, uh, of, 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 of queerness and what that means in a society that doesn't accept that and, you mm-hmm. know, all of that kind of, all of that kind of stuff. 
Fellows himself was born into a landed gentry family in 1949. Um, he studied and worked in acting. But then um, his his first like serious break was that he wrote the the script for this film, Gosford Park, and then won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for it. Yeah. yeah. Like sort of immediately. <laughs> I think, oh goodness, I didn't write it down, but I believe that was in 2001, 2002, um, right around there. Um, Gosford Park is very much a stylistic precursor to Downton, like right down to Dame Maggie Smith being cast as the um, imposing family matriarch. Yeah. I haven't seen that. It's on my list. Oh, it's uh, so cute. Or cute <laughs> is like the wrong word, but I really enjoy it. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. It's been on my list forever. Um, I have like a physical written out list that Aww. I had with my parents <laughs> of like, I think these are movies we would enjoy together. Yeah. Uh, but it is on there. I just had a conversation with somebody about Dame Maggie Smith and how she plays. Like, I thought she was really old because in Hook, she was really old. But then <laughs> it continues going. <laughs> I love you. Please don't be offended if you're listening to this. Oh, my goodness. Maggie Smith, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> yes. You're the very best. You are. <laughs> no matter the age. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. But, okay, we are a food show as we... Often ostensibly, uh-huh. ostensibly, uh-huh. Um, and food has always been a centerpiece of the show, um, and it was meant to impress on the show. Here's oh, yeah. a quote from a 2019 Washington Post article by Emily Heil: "Quote, but food, food has always been a star too. The teas and puddings and roast and cakes and souffles around which both the downstairs servants and the upstairs British aristocrats banter and scheme." Yeah, and uh, and as showy as, as the food is, it's not just for show. Or like, okay, like like when the family hosts dinners and balls, like the demonstrated wealth of the food is very much part of the point. But like, as a historically mindful, mostly mostly realistic drama, um, food is like yes, a daily part of the characters' lives and the making and serving and eating of it um, and various consequences thereof are an integral part of the show. Um, like one suspected murder plot hinges on a poisoned pie crust. Um, a member of the household staff attempts to do more with his life by going to cooking school. Um, a character is diagnosed with pernicious anemia, which was then deadly and is now known to be vitamin B12 deficiency and solved with like a day's worth of treatment. Oh wow. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah. And a part part of the show and part that I find particularly interesting um is that we get to see the staff going through the whole daily unending process of running the kitchen um without refrigeration or electricity cuz as they say in the first episode, like, no one can see the point. Why have electricity in a kitchen? That would be wild. <laughs> would be. <laughs> um, you know, right, like from the ordering of supplies to uh, to cooking, to serving, to cleaning, um, all the intricacies of dining etiquette upstairs. And the cuisine of the time was uh, was was very much influenced by... The Gilded Age, um, now a separate show from Fellows. But anyway, uh, the, the Gilded Age, which was just ending as the series starts up and was this time of wealth and excess before the World Wars and before the intervening Depression. Um, and the cuisine was also very much impacted by um, King Edward uh, King Edward the, the, the Seventh's love of uh, fancy French cuisine. 
um, as the series goes on, um, the war has its influence. Other fashions have their influence. But yeah, this this very late Edwardian concept of what is fancy, which is partially French and partially like like how much weird stuff can we throw at you? How many different types of meat <laughs> can we yes. put on a table at the same time? Yes. And how do you make that look in any way appetizing? <laughs> that is a good question because the styling of the food on Downton Abbey is a whole thing. Mm-hmm. And since the very first episode, this whole process has been helmed by food stylist Lisa Heathcote. There are a lot of good interviews and quotes out there from her if you want to learn more. Um, yeah, it requires a lot of dishes too, this whole thing, this whole enterprise. Breakfasts, lunches, oh, yeah. tea times, dinners. Many of these are extravagant in nature. Depending on the scene, uh, the food may or may not be edible uh, that we see. Often when a scene depicts Mrs. Patmore cooking a dish, as the audience, we may never seen it served or eaten. Or it might have been reproduced at two separate times and places for those two separate scenes. Um, uh, Mrs. Patmore, by the way, being um, the the, uh, staff cook on the show, which actually for like a, a state of this size, um, you know, certainly they would have had like a like a normal cook in their employ. But um, but they might have also had like a like a like a professional chef, a man right. um, for, mm-hmm. for 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 fancy things and for the weekends. But at any rate, yeah, uh, a lot of the dishes that you literally see on the show are uh, reproduced multiple times, partially because the period kitchen had to be reproduced on a soundstage. Um, because although they did do principal filming in this castle, uh, Highclere Castle, I didn't look up how to say it, and I'm not gonna. So there, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> spicy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but no, no, no. Um, uh, but but so the the downstairs of this castle where principal filming took place would not have worked. Uh, I get the idea that it had been too much remodeled over the years. Um, so they created uh, the 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 Downton kitchens some sixty miles away. Um, in order to do so, the production team apparently visited nearly 40 country homes and acquired about 70 percent, between 60 and 70 percent, original period props um, in order to fill out their kitchen setup, um, including all kinds of copper molds and bowls and mixing machines and mincing machines and stone glazed sinks and this specific type of brick that was used as a scouring pad. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. After reading through the script and consulting with the set designer, Heathcote thinks through the dishes that we will see being cooked and the dishes that we will see being eaten, especially by the upstairs crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she said that um, that a cookbook that we have mentioned often on this show, uh, Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management, was one of her primary sources. That's a great one. That's a real good snapshot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, And once Heathcote has made her decision around these dishes and cookware and all that stuff, Heathcote cooks up the dishes in her professional kitchen and drives them to set. Though for the first three seasons, she had to prep and cook in a field kitchen near the set. Um, Weather and some near misses with dogs got her an upgrade upgrade to a small craft truck for season four. Um, Another consideration for Heathcote, wardrobe. Especially... Yes, especially if there's a scene calling for dropping, I don't know, a lobster on someone's silk dress, (laughs) uh, for instance, perhaps. (laughs) 
And she also has to keep in mind the nature of filming and how it impacts food. Heathcote once said, they'll do a few takes and then we think it looks a bit sad, so we reset the plates. It's like running a restaurant. Uh, <laughs> with this kind of thing in mind, Heathcote sometimes creates ultimately inedible dishes that will withstand the conditions of filming. For example, she'll make period-accurate aspics and jellies, but she'll make them firmer so they'll hold up during filming. Mm-hmm. Mm, you don't want a melty aspic. Mm, no. <laughs> no. I mean, there's some that I don't want no matter the case, but <laughs> definitely not one that's been sitting out in hot filming lights. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> which, yeah, speaking of, She also has to take into account the crew's comfort. Season four included a lot of fish and fish mousses. And in Heathcote's words, last season seemed to have endless fish, which was really made of chicken. (laughs) So we had chicken fish. And this season we've had cheesy fish. Otherwise, with actual fish, it would get a bit smelly and unpleasant. Yeah, um, she's mentioned in a few interviews that, like, that especially early on, uh, Fellows was writing a whole lot of fish dishes into these fancy dinners. And uh, apparently, sometime before season three, some of the actors, no one was naming names, some of the actors, (laughs) like, delicately mentioned that they would perhaps prefer to not have fish on set anymore. (laughs) That's fair. Although, <laughs> to be honest, like cheesy chicken fish, I'm still unsure. That doesn't. Unsure. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps more neutral, but I'm also like, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Heathcote, most meals in the show and historically in this kind of context, uh, which she did a lot of research, um, mm-hmm. consisted of at least six or seven courses, including a clear soup, a fish course, a main entree, uh, typically a dish with sauce, um, a roast, a cheese and fruit course, a pudding and a savory, which is basically a small savory morsel of something. Uh, in Heathcote's words, it's a lot of food. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and also, thanks to PBS for this breakdown, by the way. They have a really good, if you want to learn more about the food, they've got the resources are there. Oh, certainly. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but but yeah, so so what this means um is basically that, like, like historically, the meals consisted of six or seven courses. You weren't seeing all of that on the show. So, like the dining scenes in Downton are actually scaled down from reality. <laughs> Ooh, oh my. <laughs> Yeah, um, like especially early on in the series timeline, um, yeah, like there would have been more courses, more footmen on hand. They would have been dressed fancier for fancier events. The footmen would have had powdered hair. Um, Like the tables would have been set with much larger, more ornate centerpieces. But like putting that on camera is awkward because other like how do you have people like with witty repartee around something that they can't see each other over? Like, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And on top of that, the show's historical advisor, Alastair Bruce, once said, we've made sure that the dining room is the ballet that a dining room has always been in an aristocratic house. The servants must silently and effortlessly offer food. You have to teach each of those actors how to place the fork or spoon on the dish and to serve. Each person at the table could decide whether they wanted a dish or not and how much, but once you put it on your plate, you had to eat it. That's how these people were brought up. The rule is that if Violet can't put a fork and spoon on the item on the plate and serve herself, it can't be in the dining room. Uh, Violet being Maggie Smith's character, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And that's, again, that whole etiquette aspect of it. And that's a whole thing. Just I, I really appreciate this attention to detail into the history and um, these yeah. things I wouldn't have thought of. But right, right. And, but, you know, it, it was such an important part of society at the time and mm-hmm. um, and such a wonderful, horrific kind of relic <laughs> of it. Like, you know, because I, I I don't I don't know about about y'all, but like I watch that and I go, I wouldn't have survived like I <laughs> I would have been dense. I would have been branded an outcast and uh, sent mm-hmm. to the stables and that would have been it. Like I, you know. <laughs> oh, now I want to see that show. <laughs> <laughs> Laura in the stables. <laughs> I'd been like, yep, I just talked to the cats now. <laughs> like that would have been it. Yeah. Um, some of the food though uh was actually edible um and tasty. I read that the cast um would sometimes like filch like little bits here and there. Like if Heathcote had just brought something in from the kitchens and it like looked like there might be extra, like little bits might disappear. <laughs> and mm. uh, and particularly if like they were running up on uh, on crew lunch time, like some of the cast members would like actually just eat the lunch in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to say, like as an actor, food scenes are a double edged sword because I like the kind of having something to do with your hands. Oh, of course. Yeah aspect but if you've got to do it over and over again like even a thing you like you're like please no more watermelon there was one scene i had to do oh. where i was just eating watermelon so long and i'm like i can't please oh, <laughs> oh, spit buckets are really real that's uh, oh yeah <laughs> but i don't like them and i know i'm being petty but i was also <laughs> raised this way in my house this would not be a thing you eat if it's on your plate you're gonna eat it and that's not a healthy way to be but it is how I was raised. <laughs> uh, yeah, and well, don't don't waste food. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, <laughs> speaking of, <laughs> what about the nutrition? Don't don't eat television shows. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we've brought this up before. Like they do talk about consuming television. They do, and I was trying to think. I've been watching like a lot of weird sci-fi stuff lately. I wonder if there's some kind of creature out there that subsist on ooh. those kind of ooh you know like it's it's hinted in the ring that Samara is kind of like living in the the waves of television sure yeah <laughs> so, she's in the cloud now watch out she is in the cloud she went viral she- <laughs> um, <laughs> I've seen that movie <laughs> I have not um you're a braver soul than I not because it looks scary <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> Well, uh, we do have some numbers for you. Yes, um, because as it turns out, a lot of people have indeed consumed the show. Um, at the time of its airing, Downton Abbey was the most viewed PBS drama over here in the States of all time, um, with a peak of 13.3 million viewers per week during its fourth season. Wow. Um, as of uh, 2013, it's global audience was some 120 million viewers uh a year i guess yeah um and um and also as of 2013 um that the, the show had been sold to 220 viewing territories around the world um furthermore as of its second season um it had gotten more uh primetime emmy nominations than any other television series i think 
by the end of the series, it had gotten 51 nominations Ooh. and had won 11. That might have been wow. by the end of season five. That might have been before season six wrapped up. Wow. Uh, yeah, and it was it was interesting because, as you said, here in the United States, most people watched it on PBS, which is sort of a local... It, it can be a local broadcasting service. So it was weird that um, I had to figure out how to work PBS streaming yeah. <laughs> to watch this. Yeah, all of us at the time, I think, were going like, oh, how does this do? Okay, all yes. right. Yes, and it was fine. It wasn't, like, unwieldy or anything. I just remember being like, oh, okay, I gotta, I gotta figure this whole thing out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we are not the only ones interested in the food mm-hmm. of Down Abbey. There have been a few cookbooks published about the food on this show, including one by food historian Annie Gray. Uh, in 2019, she published the official Downton Abbey cookbook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That same year, Julian Fellows published the official Downton Abbey cocktail book, Appropriate Libations for All Occasions. <laughs> It's fun. I like that title. Mm-hmm. In 2020, Weldon Owen released the official Downton Abbey Christmas cookbook. Celebrate the season like an aristocrat. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> um, the publisher also put out um, in 2020 the official Downton Abbey afternoon tea cookbook, Tea Time Drinks, Scones, Savories, and Sweets. Um, and those are just the official cookbooks. There's also um, Abbey Cooks Entertain. Um, based on the blog Downton Abbey Cooks and the unofficial Downton Abbey Cookbook. Yeah, and I find it really fascinating because as we talked about, uh, like we both sort of fell off of this train for various reasons, but all of this is pretty recent. So people are still really into it. Yeah, well, when that when that first movie came out, I think it really um, reignited a, certainly a marketing push um, <laughs> and 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 also a surge, a surge of interest. And uh, yeah, there's also a traveling exhibition of the costumes and, and some of the props and stuff. Um, if you get the VIP ticket experience, it's coming through Atlanta right now. Um, I, I have not been if anyone has been. Please write oh in and let us know about your experience. Um, but yeah, if you get the VIP ticket experience, you get like a cocktail and like a little savory, um, one of these little snacky yes. bites. Um, oh. <laughs> and so, so yeah, it's um, it is a whole thing. It is a whole thing. So now that we've like laid out the context, we did want to go over some some specific examples here. Yeah, absolutely. And we are going to get into that as soon as we get back from a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, yes, we did want to go over some specific examples. And with six to eight courses a night, in theory, on this show... Food was indeed really important on it. Um, and it also served as this coming together to gossip over. It's mm-hmm. definitely that element. And I didn't have time, but I was going to look up if uh, the phrase spilling the tea came like, or was popularized <laughs> from this show. Because that was a lot of like you come together, your tea time, and you're like, yeah. this gossip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, but the meals were often meat heavy. Uh, and this was, yes, perhaps a luxury, a way to show off wealth at the time. That's something we've talked about at these big feasts people would have, where it's almost like equal parts, uh, just like, look how rich I am. 
Uh, and yes, I will eat this and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Per- but perhaps more that first thing, like, yeah. you know, the, the entire idea of having like a pineapple just sitting on the table. No one's going right. to eat it. But that is right. your show pineapple. <laughs> the show pineapple. Yeah. Um, yeah. For the upstairs crew, their dishes were the epitome of luxury. There was oyster, champagne, figs, rich game meats, uh, while the downstairs meals were often simple. Uh, and inexpensive. And all of that means there were a lot of examples for us to choose from of food that's been on here. Um, And as we said at the top, so many of these things we could do whole episodes on. Oh, absolutely. Just just the the, the general cuisine from the era is super fascinating. We've we've threatened to do that Mrs. Beaton's episode. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, (laughs) lots of lots of future threads to follow. Yes. And as always, if there's one that particularly piques your interest, peaks or pikes, peaks, whatever. If you're interested in one we talk about, <laughs> then please yes. let us know and we will add it to our list. But it does mean something when it gets on the list. That's a big deal. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the infamous fish mousse. <laughs> um, and it is, it's infamous for a myriad of reasons when, quote, Marvelous fish mousse appeared in a script. Heathcote knew that due to the constraints of filming and keeping foods at room temperature, there was no way she could serve actual fish. Instead, she cheated with cream cheese and food dyes are chicken masked with a sauce. And this is the concoction that they call chicken fish. I read so much about chicken fish. I did too. <laughs> I was confused for a long time, but now I understand. <laughs> I kind of want to go back and look at the pictures more closely now that I know the truth. <laughs> ah, yes. Yes. Uh, there's also Downton's anchovy eclairs. Hmm. These are savory puffs often served at the end of the meal. The name eclairs is a little misleading from what I read uh, because they are more of an hors d'oeuvre. Uh, right. It's not, in a, it's not a sweet. It's not filled with, like, pastry cream. Right. Right, right, right. Um, then I looked up, I tried to find the pronunciation for this one. Maybe you know it, Lauren. Kedgery? I couldn't find it. Um, but listeners, I bet you know. So, right yeah. in. Uh, this is frequently featured as a breakfast dish. Um, it's an Indian dish of dal and rice that the British took and adapted based on their ingredients and taste. Um, again, future episode, I'm sure. Uh, on the show, it was served warm from a sideboard burner. Yeah, uh, breakfasts at Downton were typically um, more a serve-yourself kind of situation as opposed to the uh, fancier um, uh, past plate uh, lunches and dinners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for the downstairs folks, a dish like Yorkshire pudding um, may have been a go-to since it called for suet or any leftover reserved animal fat. And leftovers were key to what was cooked for those downstairs. Um, Things like ham hock, peas, potatoes, and or meat scraps went into soups, stews, or savory pies. Uh, Toad in the hole is another popular dish. But yeah, kind of using up whatever was left over from this. Yeah. Yeah. And the kind of dance of, um, of, of how to feed a staff that also has to feed the family. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh And then for desserts, Madeleines, Madeleines. (laughs) Um, And you can see our past episode uh, that we did on that one. Uh 
Scones are also a popular choice on the show frequently. And Dundee cake, which is a light Scottish fruit cake. Raspberry meringue pudding, gingerbread cakes, Charlotte Russe, which is a sweet dish served cold composed of Bavarian cream and jelly. Uh, and that is then ringed with sponge finger biscuits. That is news to me. Because I oh, really? went to malls growing up and this was oh, yeah. a store. <laughs> yeah. You never knew that that was a dessert name? No. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, Charlotte Russe. It's a, yeah. Oh, now I want to come back and learn all about that. I was like, what, the <laughs> store? Um, and then drinks um at this time after dinner drinks were fairly new and i guess this was happening all around uh like prohibition yeah um well prohibition in the states um but of course that wasn't going on or i mean the temperance movement um uh, coexisted over in england a little bit but not nearly as hard as it did here in the states um and uh, uh after dinner cocktails were certainly a new thing but um but but other various um, alcohols were quite popular. Right, right. And I actually really want to talk about that one day because I think I've told the story before, but I went to, I think, the Beefeater Museum when I was in London. Mm -hmm. And they had a whole thing about how prohibition in the United States just really (laughs) threw a wrench in their whole business. Um, It was interesting. It was interesting. So I would love to come back and talk about that one day. But uh, the Crawleys did enjoy their fair share of clarets, uh, which is a type of red wine, and also Pimm's cups. Uh, and tea. I mean, tea galore. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of the blogs that I was looking at had like a had like a per episode count of cups of tea consumed on the show. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I bet it's a lot. <laughs> bet it, that's something I would do. I, I always pick something and I count like... How often are you doing this? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. As we said, there's so much ground and so many things we could cover in this one. This is what we have for now, but there's certainly a lot of stuff we want to return to. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. If if there are any dishes that you were particularly fascinated by or that, Mm -hmm. right, you have prepared for a Downton themed party or just like something from the era that you're really interested in, then write in and let us know. Yes, please do. And speaking of, we do have some listener mail for you. We do, but first we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsors. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with listener mail. T right in the face. Wow. That's how I'm feeling. That went places I wasn't expecting, which is very appropriate for Downton Abbey. Okay. Exactly. There you You go. You get it. You get it. (laughs) Um, Greta wrote, listening to your King Cake episode now, and I made this recipe from the America's Test Kitchen cookbook called The Perfect Cake. It was made in a bunt cake pan and turned out perfectly. And I have made a lot of king cakes. Ooh. Yes. Okay. So I, yeah, uh, Greta sent a picture of the recipe. And I wanted to include this because we are coming up on Mardi Gras, which is March yeah. 1st. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have a group of friends where we have a tradition. We always get a king cake. And we did it really early this year because uh, Mardi Gras is falling kind of late. Mm-hmm. And I did the most impressive thing, Lauren. Yeah. Uh, Yes. So they were teasing me about Star Wars. And 
<laughs> I was like, I bet you I could find that. You give me that cake. I will find that baby before anyone cuts into it. And I put my hand over the cake and I like roved it over the ring mm-hmm. and I stopped and I was like, it's here. It was there. Wow. I was right. <laughs> Annie so, Reese, you're psychic. Force sensitive is what you're I'm saying. cake baby psychic. But I didn't. So the thing is. I didn't eat the piece of cake. It was for someone oh. else. But I found the baby, so I don't know who gets the luck and who has to buy the king cake the oh. next year. Um, wow. <laughs> heavy sigh, indeed, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> but thanks for sending the recipe. <laughs> yes. Because I think I talked about how I tried to make it. I did uh, when we did our episode on king cakes, and it, was, it wasn't terrible, but it was just dry. It wasn't that great. So, oh. okay. Now I know. I could give it another... Another whack. Yeah, no, America's <laughs> Test Kitchen usually does a pretty good job. Um, uh, it's, it's science, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kelly wrote, If you have leftover baguettes languishing in your freezer, this is not a problem, but rather a wonderful opportunity. One of the best things to do with it year-round is to make homemade croutons. Once you taste them, you will never want to bother with store-bought croutons again. Uh, recipe as follows. Preheat oven to 375-ish and line a baking sheet with parchment paper. Cut or tear the bread into small cubes or chunks, melt a tablespoon or so of butter, and mix it with roughly the same amount of olive oil, or you can just use one or the other, um, in a large mixing bowl. Drizzle the olive and or butter over the bread chunks and toss to coat. Sprinkle with salt and seasonings of your choice. Uh, Good options include garlic powder, onion powder, rosemary, oregano, Italian seasoning blend, parmesan, etc. Spread over a baking sheet and bake until golden brown, and desired texture is reached probably between 10 to 20 minutes. The recipe is not precise because so much depends on the amount of leftover bread you're using up, the size of the pieces, how soft versus crispy you want them, etc. Plus, ovens vary. Um, So just run some delicious experiments and see what you like best. Also, you can do these in a toaster oven or an air fryer if, say, it's high summer and you don't want to turn on the big oven. Another excellent thing to do with leftover baguette during high summer heat waves is make gazpacho. A hunk of bread in the blender food processor along with all the veggies gives it a creamy, smooth texture. Uh, croutons also make a lovely topping for the gazpacho. Also, finally, I'm catching up on the sunflower episode right after listening to the baguette episode, and I have to pass along a delicious recipe for sunflower butter popcorn. Uh, Mariah Gladstone from Indigi Kitchen was on a recent episode of Ali Ward's um, Ologies podcast, and they talked about this. I had to try it, and we made it last weekend for a movie night. Delicious. That all sounds delicious. It does sound so delicious. Yes. My leftover baguettes. Maybe they'll get some use. Excellent. Okay. Oh, I'm so glad to. That's really, that's good. I Use of leftovers is a very important yes. issue to me. Yes. Important to Downton Abbey as well. We're, yes. we're coming full circle here. Yeah. We are. <laughs> we are. <laughs> Thank you so much to both of those listeners for writing. If you would like to write to us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at saverpod.com. We are also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SaverPod, and we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. (laughs) 